box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to a very special World Cup edition of Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're with Rob Gilbert, Michael Edgley, Willem van Denderen and Derek Dyson. As we look back on the semi-finals, we're recording the day after the Matildas lost to the Lionesses and just days out from the World Cup final and, of course, the third, fourth playoff, which uh, will involve England and Spain in the final and Australia versus Sweden. So, uh, Edge... It was a spectacular saturation point build-up to the semi-final. Uh, clearly, England, on any measure, were the better side last night. But uh, but but what a, a, a night it was! Yeah, a month ago, um, much of Australia probably hadn't heard of the FIFA Women's World Cup, and and now all it's all Australia can talk about. So the Matildas have done us proud, haven't they? What a super run by uh, Tony Gustafsson's uh, women. And they've done Australia proud. And what a moment when Sam Kerr um, scored the goal of the tournament. Uh, she well and truly lived up to her reputation. And uh, for a fleeting few moments, uh, we thought it was game on, wasn't it? But uh, some defensive errors cost the Matildas. And we're out of the tournament. Uh, well, out of uh, the contention for silverware, but we're still got one more game to go, a, a third-place playoff, Rob. So, yeah, so many emotions, so many thoughts. Um, and I'm sure Willem will share those uh, types of emotions as well. Yeah, Rob, it was a game where I think even the casual observer, of which there were millions and millions, would say that Australia was pretty comprehensively uh, outplayed in most facets. But despite that, given the nature of the sport, they were still right in it. Um, yeah, the, the primary moment that we'll remember will be uh, Sam's goal. Uh, I think we'll also remember the defensive lapse and probably Sam's chance on 85 minutes that could have then uh, gotten them to, to two all with, with a few minutes to play. So, yeah, despite uh, the, the disappointment, it's... Uh, it's important to remember the context of the entire run and the entire month and uh, just how well the Matildas have done. And Derek, um, as our representative uh, expat Englishman on the panel, you, your um, 30 years spent in England um, as a you know, a, a resident of your former homeland and, and now you've got children born and bred a wife born in Australia. Uh, um, you, we talked at length about this earlier today um, and, and, and you were feeling... Uh, the love for both sides, but as somebody who who's lived a lifetime hearing about 1966 and never seen England in a World Cup final, um, this is this is a pretty special moment. What the Lionesses has done is is totally unprecedented in the English or the men uh, the men's or females game. Really, the fact that they're the defending European champions and now they're one step away from the ultimate glory. Uh, and yes, the first time since 1966 since a male or female team from England will have left uh, lifted the World Cup. To be honest, Rob, I don't know where that performance came from. England were not mm-hmm. showing signs of this performance during the tournament. Uh, they scraped past uh, Nigeria. They scraped past Colombia. But this performance against the Matildas was highly impressive. It was a statement performance. They were on it from... The first whistle to the last whistle, they showed a lot of class. They showed a lot of nous. I think they were fantastic all over the park. And while Matildas were valiant in defeat and had some moments to claw themselves back into the game, uh, I think England were easily um, the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the worthy winners on on this occasion and, and must go into the final as favourites now. 
and everybody I think on this panel agrees with you and most of the pundits, most of the fans even. So Edge, um, your 30 years in the game, expertise on the women's game, uh, we've uh, covered the, the lead up to this, uh, this tournament uh, in depth over the last several years. So insofar as expectations are concerned, uh, personally, uh, I feel like they've been well and truly met and, and we've had a, a successful event both on and off the field right now. Uh, I want to ask you the question, though, in a different set of circumstances, as we, you know, we, we conduct the postmortem of the match itself, is there another um, game plan that Tony Gustafsson could have employed and were there particular moments of the match that you identify from an Australian point of view where uh, they could have reset the way the, uh, the game played out and Australia could have ended up um, winning the match in the end on the night? I think most of the postmortems will focus on the 14 core players that Gustafsson used through the entire tournament and whether we look like we were out of gas um, partway through the second half. I think it's um, yeah, some very tired-looking players uh, for Australia in the second half in particular. I bought, you know, Gorry, Catley, Cooney Cross, uh, Fowler, Rasso, uh, Ford, they all looked tired, didn't they? So um, did his strategy of sticking to those core 14 players ultimately cost him um, when it counted most? Uh, I guess a lot of people will... Um, give that a fair bit of oxygen over the next uh, weeks and months as they reflect on what might have been. Um, uh, but I, 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 I've got to reflect on where I was four years ago when I saw a semi-final between the United States and, uh, and England uh, where United States won 2-1 and England was the better team and could have been in the final. I'm not saying Australia was the better team than England, but two defensive lapses let England score, in my opinion, um, one very soft goal and then, uh, you know, uh, the, the first goal was a super strike and a wonderful goal, but um, Katrina Gori was ball watching and, and let a player slip into some open space where maybe if she hadn't been so fatigued, she might not have. Uh, they looked like they went to sleep on that on that sort of occasion. So, yeah, there's lots to talk about, lots of uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I guess for me, Willem, do you agree? Relying on 14 core players for the entire tournament, maybe you've been uh, a bridge too far when it came to the, the heat of a semi-final. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Before I get to that edge, to your first point, Rob, about did he set the side up properly, I think tactically he got it right in terms of the style and the uh, the formation. I think the counter-attack turnover game played out beautifully against Canada uh, and against Denmark. I think they were playing slightly differently in this match because it was the first time that they'd played to a, a primary striker from the off, and I think that probably resulted in a few more long balls than we'd seen uh, in those initial two matches. But to then, to your main point, Edge, in the end, at the end of the Canada game and the Denmark game, when the result was wrapped up, that was your opportunity then to, to rest a Gorry, a Catley, bring a Chidiuk on for half an hour, maybe a Courtney Nevin, and bring those players into the tournament to, uh, to a greater extent. So I think tactically, in terms of the structure and the setup and the sort of uh, the attitude, I think he got it right. I think in terms of the squad management, um, he got it wrong. And that's something that we've seen uh, throughout the the men's side at World Cups gone by where they've gotten to third group games and, and have fallen over. So that's not a new issue. It's not a new frustration that we're feeling uh, as Aussie national team fans, Rob. Yeah, no, fair point. And look, Derek, you you, you know, gave uh, uh, your snapshot assessment of, um, of the, the game off the top. But uh, insofar as the... Um, 
the the strategy that Serena Vigman came in, it, it, it was very clear uh, that um, that it was a possession based, aggressive, physically uh, approach uh, to dominate possession of the ball, and uh, and it felt to to me as an observer that Tony Gustafsson played into the hands of the game plan that that England had set out by sitting off the ball, by allowing England to to maintain possession and and to not um, uh, counter fire with fire with some of those um, you know pretty aggressive approaches. I mean, there were there were some uh, pretty full on. Um, Physical challenges that um, that the uh, uh, the American referee uh, allowed to to go through uh, throughout the course of of the game. Uh, Tori Penso she she appeared to draw a line in the sand early with a yellow card, but then pretty much let England get away with everything. And and this is not a criticism of the players. If this was a, a strategy that that they were um, they were going out there to employ, they employed it and they they got away with it and they they intimidated. The players and quieten the crowd. Um, do do you see that as an element that was was uh, um, a part of an overall Serena Vigman managerial masterclass on the night? Yeah, just on the refereeing. I mean, I I, I agree with you to a degree. I I thought that early yellow card was a potential tone setter, but the, as you said, the the other yellows didn't didn't really follow. But my inter my analysis of of the games has been that the refereeing has been overall quite conservative when it comes to yellow cards and red cards certainly the games that I've been at there's been some quite agricultural defending tackles cynical play that I don't think a lot of the referees have have, have stamped down on so I I think the American referee on the night um, was actually just consistent with what I saw in the tournament but yes you're right she did allow some of the uh, some of the antics to continue, and certainly in the last fifteen minutes, as England looked to to wind down the game, I think it was Kelly who got a, a yellow card for moving the ball. I mean, she really had to go some to to get that yellow card. Uh, Bronze, who was an absolute rock on the right hand side for England, showed all of her quality and experience in that position. Was getting away with all sorts of fun and games down there as she marshaled Caitlin Ford and other attacks down the left. But I just felt that. Um, England, you know, you guys were saying that you know Australia felt maybe underdone, maybe uh, uh, too the, given too much in the previous rounds. I just felt like England roared, roared into this game. They obviously had the uh, the the energy levels to keep it up, and even when they lost that that, that obviously superb, um, you know, what looked like a match defining goal from Sam Kerr, they were very able to get the ball back, get the possession back. Um, stamp stamp back down on the game quickly, and and when you're talking about squad depth, when you look at who England uh, were able to bring on, whether it was the the substitutes Charles and and Kelly, and then you look at the bench packed with um, women's Super League players, Champions League uh, experienced players, um, and uh, you know James to come back for the final. England obviously just had depth and and firepower, and you felt when Australia made their substitutions that. Um, you know that you didn't feel like they were going to make the difference. I, I almost thought, in a way, that by starting Sam Kerr, and of course, you know, there's validation with the goal, and you know, she clearly there were some chances at the end there, but that was almost his trump card off the bench was gone because he started his trump card. So, yeah, I agree with that analysis on squad depth for for the Matildas. Uh, I think the the game plan from Meet Vigman was perfect, and. 
as I said, from woe to go, England were just on it, snapping into tackles, breaking up the play, and Australia's creative players, Fowler, Ford, uh, just couldn't couldn't get a toe into the game, and it was just a, a pure moment of magic uh, out of nowhere from Sam Kerr that, that that saw 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 them concede a goal. I thought Greenwood in particular at the back for for England was absolutely sensational. She dealt with her early yellow card really well. You're kind of worried, but she, she just grew into this game and, and Australia really couldn't get past her. I think England benefited from, obviously, the experience four years ago uh, in losing a semi-final and then the European Championship and then Wiegmann's tactical uh, prowess. And Australia was very dangerous uh, in the quarterfinal and the round of 16 match and that match against Canada in the last group phase on the transitional uh, movement of the ball, in particular... Uh, when they turn the ball over in their defensive third, they're able to transition very smartly and create a lot of opportunities. So Wigman Rob played um, the wingbacks, Rachel Daly and Lucy Bronze, very high up the park. It was almost at times that they were extra forwards rather than wingbacks, and they really put a lot of pressure on uh, Gorry, Cooney Cross and the Australian defence who were trying to play out uh, and get the transition game. And that uh, is what Derek was talking about, you know, forward, and Rasso really didn't get a look in because um, Wiegmann's approach to snuffling Australia's transition game was very, very good. And, mm. um, you know, she deserves all the credit. There's no reason, I guess, um, she's been FIFA Women's Coach of the Year three times. So I guess there's a reason for that. Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. And and with all of that said, and all of us in furious agreement that England were the better side, still, when Sam Kerr scores that goal, it's one all. The, the, the crowd are back into the match and Australia is back in with a chance. And how often do we see in football that the better team doesn't win and that through uh, a moment uh, the momentum shifts and the team that's been down on their luck or uh, playing uh, less than their best for most of the match suddenly roars back into it. And uh, and, and we saw a couple of moments there where, um, where after even after England scored the, the, the second go-ahead goal through a defensive error, the, um, there were two opportunities uh, to, uh, to, to equalise and Sam Kerr had, had both of those. Um, so, Willem, I, I guess I want to ask you your observations. I think one of them, uh, there was the, the header which she looked to get under rather than over. Um, was that an opportunity missed, poor judgment, or was it just a matter of, uh, of biomechanics and the physical body not being in the right spot? Not even Sam Kerr could have got that one in. But then there was the, the second opportunity where um, she um, she had that uh, that loose ball yeah. um, just a couple of feet away and and how often do we see her just rifle that into the roof of the net? Yeah, the first one was a really tough one. I think less than a 25% chance. A very nice ball from Mary Fowler, who, as Derek said, was quieter than she had been in the previous two games. But I think that was a, a pretty tough chance. But, the yeah, the, the second one, that is one that she'll uh, she'll will keep her up at night. She just looked to snatch at it. It wasn't a calm effort. And you could maybe put that down to just – touch and match fitness having only trained I think she said she only trained five times throughout the tournament post game um, so you can put that down to just form and sharpness but maybe that's also hard to argue given she's just scored the goal of a lifetime so she should be feeling pretty good about herself um, and just as an aside I thought Courtney Vine was actually pretty good off the bench we bemoaned the squad depth but she was pretty good and she did have an, eff- an effort which she drove across the keeper and was touched into the, the path of Van Egmond but unfortunately another defender as well so yeah on the balance of chances 
the Matildas probably had just as many good ones as England, just not as clinical um, on the back foot a little bit more. And given the match situation, they found themselves in edge, a little bit more desperate when their chances did come. Yeah, uh, Tony Gustafsson said in the post-match media conference that he felt the second half was the best half of football the Matildas had played. Do you agree with him, Willem? Yeah, well, I thought maybe not the best because the first half against Canada was awesome, but I thought... To your earlier point, Edge, I thought in the first half they looked tired. I thought that was when I looked at them and thought, geez, they looked like they played 120 minutes four days ago and England didn't have an easy game against Colombia, but they got it done in regulation time. So that first half to me was the one where they looked really leggy and just not in it at all. The second half, I thought, despite being the poorer side, they roused themselves and found a little bit more effort. So I thought the second half was much better than uh, much better than the first. I think just Carpenter's laps, and you could maybe tie that in with Mackenzie Arnold, who I think is a really good shot stopper on the line, but she doesn't command her area as well as perhaps she could. I think the combination of that um, opened up the chance for the second goal. And then I think the third goal, you just write that off, right? Because you've got to push forward and try to win the game. So I'm not too fussed about that one. But I think in the second half, they were the better side. Okay, guys. So we all agree England deserved winners on the night. Australia had their chances, uh, couldn't take them. Um, perhaps if the game's played 10 times, Australia win it maybe three times, uh, maybe two times. Uh, but it just didn't happen. <laughs> I couldn't live enough. through that another 10 times, Rob. No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, but, uh, you know, all credit to, to Serena Wiegmann uh, for, for orchestrating the masterclass for the players, for executing it. Uh, for uh, Australia, Tony Gustafsson, uh, you know, on the, the one hand, he was almost out of a job less than two weeks ago. Now he is comfortably looking for a renewal. And before we move on to this, uh, to the to the other semi final uh, of the breaking news, as we we, we go to to areas that um, we knew that Vladko Andonovsky was not long for this world as the as the head coach of the U.S. national women's side. But what we're now seeing is that. Tony Gustafsson is being talked about and even Jill Ellis quoted on ESPN suggesting that he should be right in the frame. I mean, Edge, how how um, worried should we be about this given that he uh, seems to be the guy that the team love and has just gotten them to a semi-final? Is this, um, is this cause for concern? Well, I mean, if you were Tony Gustafsson, um, I think he's got a contract through to the end of the Olympic Games. Um yeah, so it wouldn't be so bad breaking that if uh, he was uh, swayed to go and coach the US women's national team. He obviously knows the environment and set up very, very well. Look, you know, should we be worried? Probably. Um, is it the end of the world? Probably not. But look, at the end of the day, um, you know, the Americans will do what they do. The You know, if they made an offer to Tony Gustafson, that would be pretty hard to refute, I would imagine, mm, yeah, or compete feel- with, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Look, it feels like it would be, but this team's come a long way. So I think uh, I tend to agree with you that he, he's done very well. But we've certainly had plenty of criticisms, criticisms of him. And, well, let's uh, not forget, Rob. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Um, I know I do that from time to time, but this is an important point. Um, the you know our qualification for this tournament, we didn't need to qualify because we were the host. Let's not forget that he took. Uh, the Matildas to the Asian Cup. And had if we not been the hosts, we wouldn't have been playing in this World Cup because we lost at the quarterfinal stage. So um, we wouldn't have qualified. Let's not forget that that was under the stewardship of Tony Gustafsson. I'm not downplaying or disrespecting his achievements um, in this uh, World Cup performance. But, you know, there is a broader um, volume of work to consider in in sort of um, talking about whether he's uh, a long-term for the gig or not. 
All right. Now, um, the other semi-final, we're going to move on to, to look at the, the three-wolf playoff and, and obviously the, the final itself. But the uh, the Spain-Sweden match, uh, it looked like it was headed for extra time, then a, then a chaotic three-minute burst. Uh, so uh, Selma Parallelo uh, comes on and scores uh, on the 81st minute super sub um, no less than than what seven minutes later, Rebecca Blomquist uh, uh, equalises for Sweden, and then um, and then just as we're about to tip over into stoppage time, Olga Kamona uh, scores the the winner for Spain. The um, the fact that we have not seen Spain in Australia for for this tournament suggests that um, that they uh, not only um, are uh, you know, sitting in in the wings and and, and haven't been seen a lot by Australian um, viewers, but those of us who've, who've watched pretty much every match or you know package highlights of every match, uh, um, apart from that four nil loss to Japan, have got them at least equal favourites. So I guess I'll, I'll go to to you, Willem. You, you've watched um, most of these games pretty closely. What what did uh, you make of it? Were was Spain lucky to get out of this one? I mean, there was one late opportunity for for a corner for Sweden to to get the equaliser, which looked like a poor refereeing decision late. Uh, what's your assessment of that game? I really, really enjoyed this game. It was a bit of a slow burn, but an, an awesome finish. There's there's been so much criticism, Rob, of the Spanish manager Jorge uh, Vilda. His oppressive managerial methods and what some say are sort of inappropriate relationships with older players. Um, but, and you know, there's some saying that uh, throughout this tournament, the team play in spite of him. It's a bit of a weird dynamic. But I thought he was the one who tried to force the result here outside of extra time. He brought um, he brought the 19-year-old, uh, the, the bench weapon, who did the, who'd done the job against the Dutch on early. He took off uh, Poteas and, and Redondo and, um, and yeah, Paralleo, um did find the net. So, yeah, I thought... He was the one who sort of forced his hand from a more managerial perspective. Um, Sweden then, yeah, managed to find a goal, but then didn't pick up Olga Carmona, Derek, from the corner. She'd have to be in the team of the tournament. Every time I've turned Italian, she's been uh, in the picture. And uh, for the Swedish goalkeeper, Zachira Musovic, she'd been the hero against the US. She'd then been very, very lucky against Japan. And that luck uh, then ran out here with uh, that shot dipping just under the bar. So I think Spain were the better side and the deserved winners. But despite that, I don't think they're favourites by any stretch heading into the final. Oh, I'm going to no. challenge that because they won against Costa Rica 3-0. Th- uh, they won against Zambia 5-0. They beat um, Switzerland 5-1. They uh, had a rollicking games in uh, against um, Sweden and, and, and also the Netherlands. So how about that, Willem? Um, Ed, Derek, um, can England be rightful favourites for this considering what Spain's done throughout the course of the tournament? Yeah, and this is not, I suppose, with my my England hat on. I, I think, you know, Spain have done remarkably well. They've, they've been under the radar, as Rob said, over the other side of the over the Dutch uh, playing playing their stuff. But this is not their full strength team. I don't really know how they keep it together because when you look at the scenes with uh, Vik and and England after the game, like that looks like a squad totally unified, totally together. They love their manager. Same with Gustafsson and, and the Matildas. But, you know, th- this is not a potentially happy um, Spain camp. The uh, the Spanish manager was very careful not to run onto the pitch to celebrate with his team. He, he let them have the moments, and I think that's quite deliberate. I don't think he wants to be seen to be putting himself... Um, in the middle and, and 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 trying to deflect any of the praise away for for his team that's obviously a a, a big strategy uh, i think the obviously 
did the job against Sweden. I mean, I think this Sweden team, they, they kind of had this coming. I, I saw, obviously, them at close hand with with Rob in the uh, last 16 game, was it, against the USA, and felt like they, they lacked a lot of ambition. Uh, you know, the play of the one player up front, Black Stenius, um, who was isolated in that game and didn't, didn't have much of an uh, impact on this game either. Um, and really just playing smash and grab football. And I just think you can do that for so long in the tournament before a team's actually going to catch you out. And I think that's what that's what ultimately happened there. So Spain will be confident they've, they've, they've kind of toppled this very hard nut to crack in Sweden. But uh, I still feel, and we'll go on to the preview of the final shortly, I'm sure, but I still feel like because of the nature of England's victory, because of their pedigree in, in the last tournament, they've also they've beaten Spain recently in their encounters. I think they've got to go in as the favourites for the game. Yeah, and before we move on into that preview, well, uh, obviously, well, the nature of, of this uh, podcast, our, our listeners are football fans and they're very well aware of drama in the Spanish camp. But just to recap what actually happened, this goes back to October last year. And if you're looking for an article to to to, um, to, to bring you up to speed, I'd, I'd point you to uh, to The Athletic and the uh, Paul Ballas article on the 5th of October headline, Spanish women's football implosion, players' rebellion, manager refusing to quit. So uh, the, the, um, the, the salient points here are that uh, Spanish women's football imploded around that time. 15 of their internationals sent a private email to the country's football association and announced they wanted to stop being called up um, and and the response from Vilda was was ruthless. Uh, he he says uh, or said at the time he didn't plan to step down. He's ready to leave out the main core of the best generation of Spain's women's football, which he did, and uh, and then went on to to say this is a world of embarrassment. The solution I found is to make a list only with players 100% committed to the project, and then some of the players, a few of them, were forced to apologise to get back into the squad. And uh, and as we all now know, uh, there are 13 players. Uh, who are uh, who are not in Australia and New Zealand for, for this World Cup and, and just a little snapshot. I mean, and this does go back to 2019, but some examples quoted that that um, uh, that there, there used to be a rule that players couldn't lock the doors of their hotel at night when they were on international duty. They had to wait for the manager to come into every one of their rooms and check that they were fine before they could lock their door and go back to sleep. They accused him of lacking tactical knowledge and analysis, insufficient physical preparation, training of quality sessions. So, I mean, some of these points you'd have to say, well, They've now made the final. Um, where does do some of these accusations sit? Several um, uh, months later, that's um, I guess the, the question at hand, and um, and we'll find out. But uh, uh, he um, he's certainly been portrayed as the villain. So we go on to the preview of of the the final, um, and um, and we'll look at the three ball playoff uh, briefly afterwards. But um, but but England v Spain, uh, there were other sides who could claim arguments to be in the final uh, as equal to uh, the two sides that have made it. Uh, probably Japan is, is the, the, the standout uh, and uh, and they, they stumbled along the way and they couldn't bring their A game when they were required to. So I'll go to you, Edge, first. I mean, from what we've seen, given the evidence in front of us and the way both teams have built into this tournament, uh, what's your assessment of the final and, uh, and, and do you have uh, a clear view either way of who you expect to win? 
Absolutely have no idea who's going to win, Rob. I think it's going to be a fabulous final. Um, just because the Spaniards have been over in New Zealand, I don't think that entitles them to uh, any worse form than what England's been in. I think, um, um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating story, Spain, based on what you've just outlined, Rob, um, the history you know, leading into this. Um, uh, their coach will look like a bit of a hero if he gets the job done, but... Um, yeah, I just think it's going to be a fabulous final. Two incredible footballing nations uh, will meet uh, as worthy finalists in what's been, um, from my perspective, the single best Women's World Cup edition of all time. And what about you, Willem? Um, you know, you've watched pretty much every game throughout the tournament um, in your day job. You, you've assessed, you've heard every bit of analysis there is going around. Uh, I went into last night's game as we record um, the Australia-England match, convinced that Australia were going to win. Yeah, I think England will win, Rob. I think they'll deny Spain the ball to an extent that no other side have. Um, I think if they play as well as they did last night, they're, they're comfortably the favourites. Um, how quickly things move on, Derek, coming into the tournament. No Ellen White off the back of her retirement. Uh, no Beth Mead due to injury. And now that front three of Toon, uh, Toon, Hemp and Russo, 23, 23 and 24 years of age, uh, leading the line in a World Cup final. Yeah, the, the actual demographic of the England team is is really encouraging. If you've got kind of more war horses like Bright at, at the back, but you said that a lot of these players are coming into their best years. And look, as a young boy, I could name the uh, England 1966 team, you know, without, without blinking. Um, it was so ingrained uh, into me as I kind of grew up in, in football law. And I think this is what will happen if England... Um, Win, win this game. Win this game. Um, you know, it's just almost surreal watching England playing tournament football at this kind of high level, um, dominating, dominating games like they did recently. That's not the way England does things, certainly in the past. But I wonder whether there'll be little boys and little girls who will know Earps, um, Carter, Bright, Greenwood. That that. Back three, it wasn't a back three at the start of the tournament, but that's an innovation from Wiegmann that, that, that you know, as we were talking about, snuffed out the chances. Bronze and Daly on left and right look absolutely solid. Daly gives it everything. Walsh and Stanway are industrious in the middle. And then you said the front three, Toon, what a fabulous goal it was uh, to, to get things uh, rolling in the semi-final. Russo, of course, um, got the, you know, put the cherry on top and, and killed the game. My favourite player is Hemp. I just think she's wonderful. Um, not just her goal, which was instinctive, and she put Ellie Carpenter under pressure. The uh, the setup for Russo's goal, the no-look pass. If a Lionel Messi or a Kevin De Bruyne or someone had done that, we would be, you know, you'd be have people salivating over it. It was a wonderful piece of skill. I love her bustling. You know, she's got a low centre of gravity, she, she bustles around. She's got great acceleration. She left a few Aussie players for dead uh, yesterday with some of her runs. So I, I think she could be the difference uh, between the two teams uh, on the night. And, yeah, as I've said earlier in the show, uh, you know, I, I, I think Edge is absolutely right that you can't underestimate this Spanish team who, you know, are going out and going out there almost to prove a point. I just think with England... They, they, they're just going to have the edge in this game and I, and I expect them to win.
And Got the one some breaking that news, we right? haven't mentioned so far uh, is uh, Lauren James, of course, uh, coming back from suspension. She was the, the standout player for England uh, early in the tournament before she uh, had her brain explosion and uh, and uh, and got uh, red carded and uh, and, and uh, suspended for a couple of matches. She's lucky, based on some of the suspensions, to to be back in the uh, uh, the squad. She, um, you know, by uh, comparison to some of the other suspensions, should be uh, on the bench, but she's not. Um, the big question for Serena Wiegmann is uh, is will she start her? Will she come in as a weapon on the, off the bench? Uh, but one way or the other, Lauren James is going to have a say in this and uh, right now she'd be one of the most relieved sports people in the world, the fact that she's not going to have to suffer any ignominy uh, for being responsible for her side not making it through to the final and she's going to have a, a chance to contribute. And just as I was starting, Edge, I did hear you say in the background, you've got some breaking news and you look like There's you're some very breaking news to rival your breaking news Rob and that is that uh, the UK government. This is what. Uh, this is the true legacy of FIFA Women's World Cups, especially if they're held in the Southern Hemisphere. The UK government departments are in discussions with each other about what mechanism they need to pull to allow the pubs to open early, Rob, because <laughs> the game kicks off eleven a.m. UK time. So well, if the if the lionesses can get the pub doors opened early for the first time in about fifty years, they must be doing something right, Derek. Yeah, maybe they will, but I think there's uh, um, there's an, another ironic. Uh, maybe that's not the right word, but I did notice um, in in one of the articles that I read that there's talk of a bank holiday in England if the lionesses yeah. win. Uh, I've heard that before. <laughs> Uh, so, guys, let's wrap it up. I mean, we don't want to spend too much time on the three-four playoff, but it but it's being played. And um, Edge, you've famously described it as uh, uh, as a number of different things. But you're underwhelmed by this game. But uh, you'd still want to go out on a high. Um, most of Australia who are now on board with the Matildas wouldn't really have a clue of how insignificant the game is. But <laughs> hey, if I was in the Olympics um, and I was offered the choice of a bronze medal or a certificate for fourth place, I'd take the bronze medal. Of course you would. I just think in the context of FIFA World Cups, it's all about the winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, third and fourth playoffs. Um, I've always struggled with the concept of them. I've been working at uh, this is my eighth World Cup. Although every, every time the third and fourth playoff comes around, uh, all the t- people involved in the game say, I wish I hadn't done it. And I think I've described it as like going to the old town hall dance and being partnered with your sister, Rob. Yeah, no, I think uh, I take that comment in the spirit with which it's meant that um, it, you are not uh, a big fan of it. But I still think that they'll get a huge audience on, on Saturday night. I mean, that's uh, of course exactly they breaking news to suggest that, but uh, uh, but hopefully they can get the result. Derek, do you have a different view of that 3-4 game or do you think they should just scrap it? Oh, look, ultimately, I, I think they should just scrap it. I can't recall a single... <laughs> three fourth playoff of any note um i think turkey may have won one in the men's game once but uh i still though that being said i still think it's an opportunity for the nation here to embrace these matildas one final time i think mm. that is the benefit of getting to the semi-final yes you're not in the final but you do get the chance to play one more one more time you still get world cup goals you mm. still get world cup appearances an Australian team has never been this far in a tournament. And look, I, I don't know an Aussie that thinks anything other than first is acceptable. It's ingrained, in, ingrained into the national uh, DNA. Um, you, but at the same time, I, I think you, 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 get, you get a chance to give the fans something back. I think it is a chance belatedly for Gustafsson to give some of the squad mm. um, a turnout uh, as well. 
I don't think Sweden will be motivated for it in particular. So I think this is a game that the Matildas can actually go out and get and enjoy themselves, enjoy that crowd in Brisbane uh, and enjoy, enjoy this moment one last time. We hope it's not the last of Matildas in sort of semi-finals, finals football, but you never know. You just don't know with this game and mm. the US will be back and Germany will be back and all these other teams. So just got to go out there, do it, create a bit of history. Um, I'd fully expect them to be to, to give it a red hot go. Sweden played in it uh, in France in 2019, so they get a second chance at the third and fourth playoff. Hey, Rob, you've been asking questions through the course of this stoppage time episode. I've got a question for you because uh, you raised quite a few times in the lead-up to the event. You just felt that um, there wasn't um, any real cut-through for the FIFA Women's World Cup before it started with the mainstream press. Just what are your reflections a month on from – uh, what was a very quiet um, lead up to the event, but oh my god! Uh, just what are your reflections on just how big it's been, and and just your own experience? You've heard me prattle on for the last six or seven years about all the fun at World Cups that I have when I go to go to them. Uh, this is your first World Cup experience, having to see some games. So just why don't you uh, let our listeners know about just how have you how have you enjoyed your experience, and in particular, just the the impact of the size of the event. Yeah, look, based on what you'd been saying for so many years and your own experience and, and watching, you know, the, the most recent World Cups, uh, Women's World Cups specifically, uh, as they'd, they'd grown and the, the, the crowds and and, uh, and the responses of the countries that had done well in them, I, I had every expectation that it would be big. Um, my personal uh Concern was uh, was how well the Matildas would do, and I, I think I flagged it a few times that that group of death. I was concerned that we might not get out of it, and we did just get out of it. So uh, um, once we that night we were together at the Canada game uh, was was just a, a, a such a cathartic experience, one that um, that you know was uh, it was just like exhaling that uh, with relief. So so my my answer is is framed around the fact that. On the one hand, I knew it would be big. On the other hand, I knew it was sitting on a knife edge as to whether it could become as big as uh, as we'd hoped. But then when we got through the way that it exploded and reached, I heard it described the other day as at saturation point. And I thought, what a, what a great description it, it, the, the, the media uh, coverage at saturation point was that you just couldn't find anywhere else to hang a green and gold Matilda sign. So personally, um, insofar as the way that it's impacted the, the entire country, just so happy and so proud that the event has gone off uh, as well as it has. In terms of a professional organisation, yes, I did get a bit of shit off my liver a couple of weeks ago, or less than a week ago, I should probably say, about the the disability seats, but I've had my say on that. Insofar as the pure organisation, the structure, the aesthetic um, of the event, um, it uh, it is clinical. And you do have to take your hat off to FIFA for the for the majority of coverage, just the, the, the imaging and the look around the, the whole event. And the fact that um, that Australia and New Zealand, fortunately, after they beat Norway, uh, ticket sales boomed over there. Both countries really did well. So uh, to, to finish my answer, I'd say well beyond expectations. And hopefully it's, um, it's set the, the, the groundwork for uh, a serious bid this time around for, for a men's World Cup in our lifetime, which, uh, which seems like it's going to be the case if you listen to some of the, the experts around the place. So as the youngest uh, resident of this panel, 
Willem, uh, you've been to, to Men's World Cups. Uh, I, I guess I'd reframe Edge's question to me, to you. How do you compare this to your experiences uh, having been to Qatar, having been to Russia? Oh, hard to compare, and I spoke to Edge about this um, yesterday, hard to compare because I'm in my own city. So I, I find it difficult to place myself being overseas in a, in a city I'm unfamiliar with and in an international um, populace as opposed to being here with my with my friends and family. But what I will say is underwhelming up until the Canada game, totally overwhelming and beyond expectation beyond that. Um, I try not to think too long and hard about what had happened had the Matildas have put in a stinker that night and bombed out because the tournament just would not have taken off. Um, but since then, like I've spent my my teenage and adult life trying to convince half-interested friends, come to this game, this is important, let's do this, let's go to the pub, let's go and watch the matches. Um, people that I never, ever would have thought would have had even the slightest interest in soccer football are all of a sudden booking the pubs and organising a whole bunch of people to, to watch the Matildas. So, um, yeah, and you can tell when people are genuine. Um, and, yeah, I think since that Canada game, the last two weeks have been phenomenal. Yeah, no, well done. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Um, we'll be back on, on Monday night. We'll see you then, mate. Thank you, guys. Derek, uh, thank you, mate. Uh, good luck on Sunday. Uh, I know I'll be um, going for the Lionesses um, and um, hopefully uh, hopefully they can bring home uh, – well, let's. Just, I have seen those signs. Football's coming home, the headlines. Um, so I know it was said in jest at the time, but uh, maybe it is. Hopefully they come up with a new phrase, Rob. But, uh, yeah, fing- fingers crossed, but – Fantastic tournament and looking forward to the game. I can't do that, Rob. Vamos España from me, brother. (laughs) Yeah, of course I didn't. Can't bury for the Poms. Come on. (laughs) No, I am. I'm on the bandwagon. Go the Lionesses. We had hoped from an Australian point of view that it'd be uh, another step on the road to celebration, but uh, uh, we've we've had an absolute ball covering it so far, and um, and we'll return to to normal programming. this uh, well Monday evening we'll record and it'll drop in your podcast feeds uh, uh, overnight on Tuesday the wrap of uh, the World Cup but final and of course the three four playoff and then we'll start to look at uh, at what comes ahead we've got the Asian Cup we've got the Premier League and all the European leagues and, uh, and lots of other qualifying to come we've got the Olympics next year as well so thanks for listening we hope we've brought you some uh, taste of box to box style uh, World Cup over the course of, of the last month there's one more show to go we will wrap it up as I say uh, please subscribe to box to box stoppage time and offside wherever you get your podcast tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on twitter make sure you like us on facebook as well and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game